morning. It's good to see all of you here. My name is Wayne Park, and uh, it's my privilege to encourage this congregation, this group of people, once a week, but regularly every week. Um, for me, it's a joy. It's my, not just a job for me. It's a burden of love. Um, I want to be here regularly to see each of you every Sunday and to just offer something that will give you strength and encouragement for the week. And so, um, for me, it's a delight to do that. For the last few weeks, we've been in a series, and in this fall season, we're talking about work and spirituality. Spirituality and work. And the two don't mix together very well. Typically, uh, we like to think of something, we like to think of spirituality as something that's for Sunday, and that's for holy spaces like this, where we sing praises to God. But once we hit the marketplace Monday morning, we're go, 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 we're cutthroat, we have to live and survive and make another dollar. And for many of us, um, the challenge is bringing spirituality from Sunday into Monday morning. Last Friday night, we had a group of people in my home discussing the reframe course, talking about work and spirituality, and it was a very important moment for me as I got to hear how hard it really is for a lot of Christians in this world. For me, as a pastor, I see Christians on Sunday, but how hard it is for Christians to live as Christians in the real world, so to speak. How difficult and challenging it is to live a Christian life isn't it easy? Wouldn't it be easy if I just said spirituality is something for Sunday? It's just something that we do in holy spaces like this. Why do we have to mix oil and water? Why do we have to take spirituality, Christianity, out of the personal sphere of life? Why does it have to be into the public? And so these are some of the things that were really challenging because I don't want to just see Faith and spirituality is something we do on Sundays, but how does it affect my job as, as somebody that works in finance or marketing or at, as a teacher or in whatever sector you are in? How does my faith inform that? One story that I heard, actually I was invited to, uh, 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 I was asked to be surveyed by Rice University, by a sociology professor there, and the question she asked me is, for your people, do you have any scientists in your congregation? And I said, some. And her question was, and this is, I think this is anonymous, so it's okay for me to disclose this. Yeah. And so the question was along the lines of, for scientists, for people of science, how do they, how do they correlate science, how do they correlate their faith on Sunday with their practice of science on Monday to Friday? where it would seem that science is at odds with faith. And, you know, I struggled with the answer to that question because for some people, science and faith don't mix. It's something that's entirely separate. How do we take our faith into places like science? How do we take our faith into the tunnels of downtown Houston or into whatever work that you find yourself in? And so my hope is to bring the two together, oil and water, to find a way for them to become one, and to offer a holistic perspective on faith, but also work. So, today, I'm going to talk specifically about Sabbath, once again. And I've spoken about Sabbath a couple of times, and I'm going to speak about rest, about Sabbath one more time, at least one more time today. 
And the reason I do that is because, for me personally, I work, I work six days a week. Um, you know, I'll do my 40-plus hours. And then when the seventh, and for me, this is how it happens. Um, it culminates. My work week starts on Tuesday. Friday, it's kind of a bummer because everybody around me is saying, oh, man, TGIF, I'm glad my work week is over. And for me, it's just ramping up. And come Saturday and then come Sunday, it's like my work week culminates in Sunday. And then come Monday, I crash. And sometimes good and sometimes not very well. And I'm always looking for this elusive thing called true rest. For the longest time for me, crashing on a Sunday night meant going to Redbox and renting one or two movies and sitting down and just kind of turning into a zombie. And after a certain point, I was like, this doesn't help. I don't feel really deeply rested. And I feel like for so many years, I've been searching and searching and searching for this thing called Sabbath. I've been even asking my Jewish friends, what does Sabbath really mean? And we've had some interesting discussions. I think in order for us to really talk about work, we have to also understand rest. And so today, once again, I'd like to talk about rest through Mark chapter 2. And I'm going to talk along two headings. And if you look in your notes, in your notes here, you'll find uh, two sections. First section I'm going to talk about is this elusive Sabbath, this thing that's so tricky, the elusive Sabbath. The second thing I'm going to talk about is a Sabbath of justice. So first, the elusive Sabbath, and secondly is a Sabbath of of justice. So guys, look with me at Mark chapter 2 as we talk along these two sections. Mark chapter 2, verse 23. And before I launch into this passage, I want to give you a visual, okay? How many of you have seen the movie Gladiator with Russell Crowe? Now, there's a, there's a, hopefully it's not a spoiler or anything, but there's a funny comment that Russell Crowe's character, what's his character's name? Maximus. And in the beginning, Maximus, he's a general of an army. He gets up in the front, he rallies his soldiers, and he says, if you're, cry, if you're running out into battle, into the work field, into whatever it is, and you find all of a sudden you're walking among fields of gold, you're in Elysium. You're dead. <laughs> and the irony is, there are moments throughout this movie where Russell Crowe or Maximus has these images where he's walking through these fields of gold. Do you remember? And he's walking through grain fields, and he's touching heads of grain along the way. It's almost like a foreshadowing of what's going to happen to him. The scene that we're about to read in Mark chapter 2 is that image. The sun is setting just perfectly. It's nice outside. It's kind of like today. And you're walking through fields of gold and touching the heads of grain. That's the scene that we're about to read. Jesus and his disciples in Mark chapter 2, verse 23, were passing through the grain fields on the Sabbath, on the holy day. And as they're walking through, his disciples began picking the heads of grain. And so you see the hands touching the heads of grain, and they're picking it, and they're eating it along the way. It's kind of like a little snack. And as they're doing that, in verse 24, the Pharisees, the religious establishment, is observing and saying, why are they doing what's not lawful on the Sabbath? Now, how many of you or who here 
can find the verse in the Old Testament that says, thou shalt not pick heads of grain on the Sabbath. Has anybody found that? Here's what the Old Testament does say in Deuteronomy, the fourth commandment of the ten, thou shalt keep what? Holy. The Sabbath. And I, for one, believe the, old, uh, the uh, Ten Commandments still, uh, we, are in, we are obligated to observe those. If somebody tells me, as a Christian, we don't have to observe Sabbath, I would respectfully disagree. We are still obligated to the Ten Commandments. It is necessary for us to observe Sabbath. But here's the thing. As they're picking the heads of grain, the Pharisees say they're breaking the Sabbath. Where, where does it say that thou shalt not pick heads of grain? And let me teach just a little bit here. Hang with me, guys. In the Old Testament, you have the primary law. If you're breaking the Sabbath, uh, if you're working on the seventh day, you're breaking the Sabbath. But for the Jews at that time, they realized that they had sinned and fallen short of the glory of God. God had punished them. They had lost everything. And in order to bring God back, so to speak they decided to build a secondary set of rules. This secondary set of rules would become what we know today as the Talmud. It was the oral tradition where they said, in order to keep you from breaking the primary law, we've set up secondary laws. This way, we'll be extra careful not to break the primary law. Does that make sense? In other words, we don't want to break Sabbath anymore because we don't want to make God mad anymore. So what we're going to do is we're going to make extra laws. Two laws, for example. On the Sabbath day, we don't want to break the primary law of the Sabbath, so we've set a secondary rule that says if you walk more than 1,999 steps, you're breaking Sabbath. This was an actual law. If you're walking more than 1,999 paces, one step more 2,000, the minute you take 2,000 steps, you're breaking the law. On top of that, another secondary law was that you could not reap on the Sabbath. Now, being a farming society, reaping, that was work. What they're saying is you can't reap. You can't pick up a sickle, and you certainly can't pick heads of grain. Why? Because that's reaping. And if you break the secondary commandment, we're going to break the primary commandment, which is to keep Sabbath. For the Jews, this was their view of keeping the law. And for Jesus, he had to say, that doesn't sound right to me. So, let me ask you, how many of you have friends that are Jewish? How many of you are familiar at all with what Jewish people observe? Jewish custom as we know it today, rabbinic Judaism, was not always like that. In fact, during the time of Jesus, it was beginning to form. It was in its embryonic stage. And what was happening was Jesus was looking at the baby, and he didn't like what that baby was going to look like when it, when it grows up. He was looking at the baby, and he's saying, I don't think that's the way this religion should turn out. Strict rule-keeping, 1,999 paces, I don't think that's what Sabbath is about. I think Sabbath, we need to get to the spirit of true rest. We need to find out what rest really means, let alone 1,999 paces. 
What's the spirit of rest? What's rest really about? Jesus is trying to get to the heart of the matter. He's offering a competing vision. I've said this before. A competing vision, an alternative vision of what the religion and what faith is supposed to look like. Now, let me get personal here. Why do I talk about Sabbath? Why is Sabbath such an important thing for me? In my life, I've, I've battled uh, depression. In my, you know, when I, in my younger years, I know what it's like to be burned out. And so I intentionally began practicing Sabbath 15 years ago. Fifteen years ago, I'd set one day aside where I didn't do any work, where I made sure to worship God together with my family and community, and I was also taking care of myself. I was practicing self-care. And for 15 years, over 15 years, intentionally practicing one day where I would just do those things, I still, after 15 years, am restless, I'm irritable, and I'm discontent on my Sabbath day. And I'm always searching for this elusive thing called Sabbath. Friends, if you relate to what I'm saying, chances are you're looking for something called heaven. True rest, Sabbath rest is a gift. It's to go back to the garden. It's, it's in a sense looking for heaven. And if we could find heaven by keeping a set of rules or not walking more than 1,999 paces, or if there were rules that told me I could experience heaven, then I would prefer that. I would do that. I would prefer to live according to the rules, but somehow I know that those things don't really contain the spirit of real rest. You guys know what I mean when we talk about real rest? Do you know? It's like that moment when you're sitting at your dinner table. You've had the perfect meal no one wants to stand up. Everybody's sitting around and talking, laughing. You feel good, and you're just hanging out. And you're like, this is a good moment. It's a good moment. Or maybe you've just finished the back nine of 18 holes, and you're looking out in the fair, and the wind is just gently blowing, and there's no humidity, and you've played a good game, and you're on the grass, and you're like, this is the life. This is a blessing. Or you know what it's like to just finish a book, and you closed it, and you're like, that was a great story. That was a good movie. It wasn't just like I'm drooling, and it wasn't just like, you know, it was something that, man, that was a good story that really spoke to me. You know that feeling? If I could take that feeling and manufacture it and sell it every Sunday, I would. Here's the thing. Jesus says you can't. That feeling that you're looking for, that rest, that true rest, it doesn't come by rigid rules. This is how it comes. And so listen to this. Jesus launches into this and he says, this is how you find that tricky thing, that elusive Sabbath. So look with me now at Mark chapter 2. How do we find this elusive Sabbath? How do we get that feeling? Jesus says in Mark chapter 2, verse 25, he tells a story. And in this story, he says, you guys, have you ever read about in the Old Testament when David, when he was in need and he and his companions became hungry? So David and his mighty men, they entered in verse 26, they entered the house of God. And when they entered the house of God, 
they ate the consecrated bread, the holy bread, which was not lawful for anybody to eat except the priests. Remember that story? Let me tell you another story. How many of you have watched, I'm sorry for all these kind of macho movies, have you ever watched 300? All right, where you have Gerard Butler, I don't know the character he plays, and with Gerard Butler are 300 mighty men, men who've done great exploits. That's kind of like what you have here. King David, followed by an entourage of men of great exploits, each one having killed hundreds and thousands, great warriors, and in a place of need, they're tired. David and his mighty men, they come to a temple, and they eat the holy bread that they're not supposed to eat. Here's the thing. After they ate the bread they weren't supposed to eat, what happened? Nothing. Lightning didn't strike from heaven. God didn't punish David. And the priests, they couldn't say anything. Why? Because King David, it was, it was King David. It was David. He was going to be the high king of Israel. He was, he was the one from whom our messianic hopes are placed. In other words, what Jesus is saying, listen to this, what Jesus is saying, you remember when David did that with his mighty men? Here I am with my mighty men, why can't we do it? Why can't we do what King David did? Now picture the response of the Pharisees. What? what? David, I get. You? Who are you? And Jesus is, is communicating something here. What he's saying is, if David did it, why not I? And so the first fill in the blank in your notes, what does Jesus do but compare himself to holy precedent. Or if you want to just simplify it, he compares himself to David. Jesus compares himself to David. And the Pharisees are flabbergasted. They're asking him, who do you think you are? Now, friends, think about this for a second. The identity of Jesus. Who does this guy think he is? He's saying that he's the same as David. David and his mighty men. Here comes Jesus with 12 fishermen, scholars, Pencil pushers, accountants. <laughs> Just making fun here. Sorry, accountants. And those are supposed to be the analog for David's mighty men. Friends, this question of who does this guy really think he is coming into my life, into my turf, and telling me what's right, what's wrong, what's ethical? Tell, who, who is this guy? In your Monday to Friday, picture what it would be like if I was hovering over your shoulder. How annoying would that be? I don't want to hover over your shoulder. The thing is, in your life, in your real, so-called real life, it won't be my words that challenge you, that challenge your workplace. It won't be a moral, this sense of I've, I've moral... I have a moral obligation. It will be one thing that will challenge you when you go back to work next week. And that one thing will be the question, who is Jesus really? And when we encounter this question, who exactly is this Jesus? That is the question, I think, that will disturb us, discomfort us, that will challenge us enough to maybe work differently, to consider carefully how do I live out my faith on the job? I'll say this again. It is not 
my, it is not your pastor, it is not moral obligation, it's Jesus and your relationship with Him that's going to take you, that's going to meet you on your Emmaus road, right? On your Emmaus road, where you work, where you live, and in your relationship with Him, that's where the challenge will come from. Who is this? Who, who, is this? who does He really think He is? Who exactly is this Jesus? And there's a second thing here. Jesus not only compares Himself to David, but this is really fun. Listen to this. This is really fun. He doesn't just compare himself to David. What he does is he says, David went into the temple of God and started eating holy bread. What is Jesus and his disciples doing? Did they enter into the temple of God? No. They were walking in fields. Remember that image? Touching the heads of grain. And the bread that they were eating, were they eating holy bread? In a sense, they were. Do you get this, guys? Jesus is walking in the fields through the house of God, eating the holy bread along the way in the fields. Do you feel me? He's talking about everything. The world is the temple of God. The fields and the grain along the way, this is the holy bread. The road that you walk as you travel down I-10 and you're stuck in traffic, this is a holy road. He's calling all of creation consecrated. That's the second fill in the blank. Jesus connects creation with consecration. He's saying all of it, all of it is holy. All of it is holy. He's not in a temple in a house of God eating holy bread that's been sanctified. They're walking through the fields eating the grain out of the, out of, out, straight out of grain fields. Everything is holy. This is very important, friends. We're not just talking about sanctifying Sunday and this holy space. And Sunday's a holy day. We're being challenged. In our small groups, I can tell we're being deeply challenged. I heard some of the stories about what it takes. You know, what does it take for me to be a Christian if closing the deal means doing some things that really compromise my faith? I mean, it's one thing I can understand. We'll you know, have a couple of beers or something, and they say, you really want to close this deal, young man? Then we have to take this to the next step. A couple of beers was just the start. I say, oh my God, what does this mean for my faith? How am I going to close the deal and still be a Christian? And it's heartbreaking. It truly is a challenge, friends, for you. Because all of creation is holy. All of creation is holy. And how do we make it holy is the question. How do we as Christians sanctify the other days of the week? Well, hang with me. We're going to go one more step here. Look at Mark chapter 2, verse 27. Jesus, he says, friends, Pharisees, the Sabbath was made for man, not man for the Sabbath. God made us. Uh, he didn't make us to be put in the box of Sabbath rules. God made us so that we could be served, so that we could be blessed by Sabbath. And then he says something 
curious. And so the Son of Man is Lord even of the Sabbath. In other words, we're not meant to serve Sabbath. Sabbath is meant to serve us. And even so, I, Jesus, am the Lord of the Sabbath. I am the Lord of the Sabbath. And he calls himself something very curious. Listen to this. He calls himself the Son of Man. It's a strange statement. A lot of ink has been spilled. What does this mean? Where does the Son of Man come from? Where does that phrase come from? I believe it comes from Daniel chapter 7, verse 13. Now listen to this carefully. Daniel chapter 7, verse 13, it says this. Daniel is having another one of his visions, and it says, I kept looking in the night visions, and behold, with the clouds of heaven, one like a son of man. Daniel is saying, I saw somebody that resembled human. You can pretty much say a son of woman. In other words, a child of a human being. I saw somebody that looked like a person, a human, and yet... This son of man came to the ancient of days and was presented before him and was given dominion, glory, kingdom, peoples, nations, men of every language would serve him, has an everlasting dominion which will not pass away and his kingdom will not be destroyed. In other words, I saw somebody like a son of man and yet he was more like a son of God. Jesus calls himself a son of man. I believe straight out of these visions from Daniel and what he's saying is this. Listen carefully. 1,999 paces? Are you serious? You're trying to tell me what rest is when I was there on the first seventh day? You're trying to tell me what true Sabbath is? When I cooked up the idea with dad up in heaven, and when we came up with this notion that we would instill creation, do, let me ask you this, an omnipotent God, God Almighty, who's all-powerful, does he really need to rest on the seventh day? No. Then why did he do it? Why did God rest on the first seventh day? If not to model it, to instill it into the DNA of all of creation, Jesus, the Son of Man, is saying, that was my idea. It was my idea. You're looking for rest in 1,999 paces, and I'm telling you that rest is in me. In other words, that elusive rest, guys, I wish I could tell you, thou shalt, on the Sabbath day, Go to church, get some rest, play video games, eat a good meal, and that's how you Sabbath. But truthfully, I can't say that because the author of rest, Jesus himself, that's where rest is. Rest is a person. It's trust in Jesus. I'm going to finish off here. The second half will be shorter than, this, than the first a Sabbath of justice. So, we're talking about that elusive Sabbath. We're talking about that elusive Sabbath. How do we find that feeling again? How do we get to that place where I'm truly at peace? Sabbath rest. And now I want to talk about a Sabbath of justice. It might seem like I'm changing channels here, but track with me. Mark chapter 3, verse 1. 
Listen to this. Jesus enters into a synagogue and a man was there with a withered hand. And they were watching to see if Jesus once again would heal on the Sabbath so that they might accuse him. And so there's a, there's a litigation going on here. The Greek language here, it uses the language of they're looking for grounds for which to build a case against Jesus. They're looking for grounds for which to build a case against Jesus. And Jesus puts on his suit and tie and he goes to work. He puts on his glasses and he steps up to the bench and he says, Your Honor, I'd like to present the first witness. And he looks at the man with a withered hand and he says, Come forward. Come on up here. Come on up here. And so the man with a withered hand comes forward. And then Jesus turns to the opposition. And he says to them, Guys, is it lawful to do good on the is it lawful to do good or harm on the Sabbath? To save a life or to kill? And so he enters into a debate with the opposition. And the debate is an ethical debate. It's an ethical debate. Hang with me here just a little bit more. I know, I know this is, we're getting into hard stuff here, Autumn, but if you listen to this, you're going to get an A plus on your next philosophy class. What Jesus is asking is a philosophical question. And the question, on the one hand, is this. Should we keep the law, but in the process allow evil to continue? Does that make sense? This is called... Technically, it's called deontological ethics. It's duty ethics that says, should we keep every single rule and do the right next thing, but in the process allow evil to continue? Sure, we're not breaking the Sabbath. Sure, we're not walking 2,000 paces. Sure, we're keeping the law, but we're at the same time neglecting to do good. We're failing to do what we need to do on the Sabbath. People are not getting healed. Should we allow evil to continue even if we're doing the right thing? Or, or on the other hand, should we, is it better to break the Sabbath in order to save a life? So on the one hand, you have something called deontological ethics, which is basically duty, responsibility, do the right thing, but let evil continue. But on the other hand, it's something called consequential ethics, which basically says every now and then we'll break a rule. Every now and then, come on, we'll break a rule so that it will serve the greater good. It will serve the greater good. Which is better? Which is better? Search the scriptures. Does Jesus give an answer? Actually, no. Jesus doesn't answer his own question. He doesn't say if consequential or deontological ethics are better. Actually, if you think that Jesus is saying, break a couple of rules, what's the big deal? In the end, it's going to serve the greater purpose. The ends justify the means. If you take that ethical uh, viewpoint too far, you can legitimate mass crimes. The ends justify the means has been used. This ethic has been used to legitimate genocide. So you can't necessarily say Jesus is on this side either. What side is Jesus really on? Here's the thing. They don't answer. What does it say but that they kept silent? And on the Sabbath day, the Pharisees didn't say anything and they didn't do anything. 
on the Sabbath day, they did nothing. They wouldn't even think. They wouldn't debate. They wouldn't acknowledge. They did nothing. On my Sabbath day, I did nothing. Here's somebody with a withered hand. Here's somebody that's suffering. And on my Sabbath day, I did nothing. I didn't even want to think about it. And this really made Jesus upset. And I'm wrapping this up. I'm landing this plane, guys. Jesus looks around at them. So much frustration. And he says, he doesn't even answer his own question. He says, stretch out your hand. And the man stretches out his hand, and Jesus heals it. He heals it. Friends, on our Sabbath day, are we consistently sitting back and doing nothing? I understand Sabbath is about rest, but are we neglecting our greater responsibilities? Listen to this, and I'm going to drive it home with this. There's so many stories of this kind of thing happening throughout the Gospels where somebody is healed on the Sabbath and the Pharisees are upset. There's one story in Luke chapter 13 where there was a a woman who was bent over and for 18 years could never stand up. And Jesus says, after 18 years, and how many Sundays is that? How many many Sabbaths is that? It's like 52 times 18. And for all those times that she's shown up to church, you've done nothing for her. You can sense the frustration. And so he heals her on the Sabbath. And the Pharisees, they get upset. And Jesus says, if you had an ox or a donkey that's thirsty, are you going to let them thirst on the Sabbath day? Sorry, I'm not going to do anything. It's my day off. I'm resting. I'm not going to take care of the needs of the world around me because it's my day off. And listen to this. Same, a similar story comes up one chapter later in Luke 14. All right, I'm going to land this plane. Listen, in Luke 14, this time they had a man suffering from dropsy. And it's a Sabbath yet again. And they're watching to see if Jesus is going to heal, and he does. And then he tells the Pharisees, which of you who have an ox, listen to this, or a son that falls into a well will not rescue him? So he starts off talking about donkeys and oxes and animals and horses. Shouldn't you take care of your animals? Are you going to neglect? Are you going to neglect your responsibility on the Sabbath day because you're doing nothing? But then he closes in on a very personal relationship here. And instead of a donkey or an ox, he says an ox or a son. How many of you on your Sabbath day are neglecting a relationship? How many of you on your Sabbath day, you're resting in God and yet you're doing nothing to fix the broken and wounded relationships? How many of you have amends to make, but because it's your Sabbath, you're not really willing to do anything about it? How many of you are resting very, very comfortably in Jesus right now? Jesus has got me. I'm resting in Jesus. But in the meantime, there are broken relationships, a son in a well, a friend who is hurt, a mother 
or a father-in-law that's been neglected, a child that hasn't been looked after. Do any of you have a lost ox or a lost donkey or a lost son? Maybe this Sabbath you have some work to do. Maybe what's asked for is not a Sabbath of rest, but a Sabbath of justice. A Sabbath of self-examination. In closing, I'll just share personally and lead with my own weakness. I felt like the last few Sabbaths, all I wanted to do was just crash. I'm so tired. But my children need me. My wife needs me. My parents need me. My in-laws need me. And I feel like I'm spending my whole Sabbath day for everybody else. And by the end of the day, I'm mad. What about me? What about my time? I never got to sit down and watch a movie. It's 10 p.m. already. I got to go to bed and wake up early. And I'm thinking, what about me? And God's telling me, you big baby. When are you going to start living for other people instead of yourself? And that's, that's the honest truth. Your pastor leads with his weakness. I'm like, what about me? I'm so tired. I'm going to get depressed, God. If you I need to take care of myself. And he's saying, what about them? What about the son in the well? What about the mother-in-law? What about the friend? You have an amend to make. You've got some work to do on your Sabbath, young man. You've got some work to do on the Sabbath, friends. You've got some work to do. God's not saying you're scot-free. He's saying on the Sabbath, do a Sabbath of justice. Make a Sabbath of examination. Make a Sabbath of justice and mercy. Live your holy day reconciling, bringing peace, making the world better. I have a feeling if you work that way, you will not be struck with lightning from heaven. Maybe I will. <laughs> what did you tell those people? To work on the Sabbath? Actually, no, I think you'll be okay if you're working for justice and mercy. So friends, as we conclude, I'd like to invite you to close your eyes and to think about your donkey or your ox or your son And I want to invite you into a time of prayer as the music starts. And I want to invite you to say before God as you pray, No, I will not give up on my son. I will not give up on this relationship. I'm going to fight for this marriage. I'm going to fight for this friendship. No, I will not give up or walk away. I'm going to spend my day off. I'm going to spend my precious personal time to make things right. I'm going to live for others. I'd like to invite you to fight a little bit now and just to respond to God and say, no, I'm not giving up. I'm going to fight. I'm going to make some work happen today for good and for right in this world. I'm going to do right. I'm going to do good.
going to say a prayer now, and if you're finding it difficult to talk to God, you can repeat after me. Lord Jesus, I'm struggling to make something right. And honestly, I don't want to try anymore. But I hear you calling me to not give up. I hear you calling me to healing, to restoration, to making all things right, to doing good. Help me on this Sabbath day to make a good choice and to do a Sabbath of justice. Help me in my workplace to fight a good fight, to live ethically. And most importantly, help me to see you and to have a fresh revelation of you. Jesus, I wish to see you more intimately than ever before. Meet me on my Emmaus road as I go back to work tomorrow morning. I pray this in your holy name. Amen. This has been a Woven Church podcast. Woven Church is a multi-ethnic missional church that meets in West Houston. We invite you to check us out on Sunday mornings at 10.30 a.m. To find out more, visit us online at www.wovenchurch.org. That's www.wovenchurch.org.